you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15 uh, is where we're going to be this morning. Some of you will be familiar with the name Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Before Ravi Zacharias was a well-known Christian author and speaker and apologist, he was a shame-filled teenager. He was a shame-filled teenager who, at one desperate moment of his life, saw no option but to end his life. And so he broke into uh, one of the rooms at his university, and he stole some poison from the school's chemistry lab, and he attempted, he attempted suicide. A couple days later, in the midst of what is that incredibly dark and broken and vulnerable place, God met him and forever changed the course of his life. And he writes about that experience in one of his books called The Cries of the Heart. I found myself, after that attempt, lying in a hospital bed, having expelled all the poison that I had taken, but unsure if I would recover. There on that bed, with a dehydrated body, the scriptures were read to me. The flooding of my heart with the news that Jesus Christ could come into my life, and that I could know God personally, defies the depths to which the truth overwhelmed me. In that moment, with a simple prayer of trust, the change from a desperate heart to one that found the fullness of meaning became a reality for me. God reached down to a teenager in a hospital bed in the city of New Delhi, a mega city of teeming millions. Imagine. God cared enough to hear my cry. How incredible that he has a personal interest in the struggle of our lives. I cannot express it better than to say that his self-sufficiency and greatness do not deny us the wonderful joy of knowing that we are of unique value to him. That was the point of the parable Jesus told about the shepherd who left the 99 sheep in the fold and went looking for the one. So as we finish this morning our series on the parables of Jesus, it's to this parable that we turn today. The parable of the lost sheep and the very similar parable that immediately follows it in Luke's gospel, a parable about a lost coin. And we're going to wrap up our series on the parables here in the hopes that it will begin preparing us for Lent, which, as I mentioned, begins just in a few days from now, on Wednesday. During Lent, we remember our mortality. We remember that we are from ashes, and to ashes we return. We also, during Lent, remember the reason for our mortality in the first place. We die as a consequence of sin. Our mortal bodies die as a result of humanity's fall, humanity's rebellion against God. And so Lent is the season where we focus not only on our mortality, but on repentance, on this painful but but very real truth that we are sinners desperately in need of salvation. This Lenten focus on repentance then prepares us to feel both the sting of Good Friday as well as the triumph, the victory, the sweetness of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. So as we're getting ready to head into the season where both together as a community and individually in our own lives, we're going to come face-to-face with sin. And we're going to come face-to-face with our need for repentance. We need to know, and we need to know unequivocally, the truth that is communicated by these two parables. That Jesus Christ pursues and finds and recovers that which is lost. Or to put it in even more simple terms, that Jesus saves sinners. 
Right? This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. This is why we can be honest about our sin before a God who is holy and perfect. This is why we can be people of repentance and faith. Because Jesus came to seek and save what is lost. So for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time or even more for you, hear the loving and recovering work of Jesus in these parables. And listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, compel us to simply take you at your word. Guide us even now in these moments by your Holy Spirit. Do not let us leave today without being renewed by your promises, without being renewed by the powerful joy of the work that you do. We pray this for our sake, Father. We pray this for the sake of those we love and those we long to experience the same thing that we have experienced and are experiencing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the setting of this parable, the outcasts of the Jewish people, the tax collectors, and those that are just deemed, quote, sinners, are drawing near to Jesus. And we see that Jesus is receiving them, he's eating with them. And in the first century, eating with someone is a a sign of, of welcome and fellowship and relationship with them. And so no proper or self respecting Jewish man would eat with a tax collector or a sinner. So the Pharisees and scribes, the leaders among the Jewish people, they're grumbling. Jesus responds not actually with two parables, but with three about the joy of finding that what that which was lost. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or what's more commonly known as the prodigal son. That's the parable that comes after the passage that we just read together this morning. We've looked at that third one, the lost son, the prodigal son. We've looked at that parable really in depth as a church in different points in our history. We actually look at it as the starting point for our in-covenant, our membership classes here at Liberty. Every time we do the in-covenant class, we start with the parable of the prodigal son. And we do that because it really illustrates well different kinds of lostness. Both those who are overt rebels against God and those who are rule followers but just seeking to somehow put God in their debt so that he owes us something. Those are just two different ways of lostness. 
And we see in that parable that there is only one way, regardless of, of which specific way you are lost, there's only one way back to relationship with the Father. That's through his mercy. So in these two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, let's look today and consider two things. The God who seeks and the joy-affecting clarity that that brings. The God who seeks and a joy-affecting clarity. So first, the God who seeks. The God who seeks. A couple decades ago, a term was coined in the American church. The term was a seeker. A seeker. It's a way to describe someone who is not at present a Christian, but who is interested in the things of God, who is interested in Jesus or learning more about who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. It's not a bad term. It's not a bad term. And actually, it was a term that was coined with the intent to really show respect to people, to really honor the process it is to come to know and believe in Jesus. There are some people who have these rapid hospital bed crisis conversion moments like Ravi Zacharias did, but far more people explore and consider and seek to understand before they ever decide to believe and make a commitment to follow Jesus. The shortcoming of the term seeker is that it can lead us to mislocate where the real initiative lies. Right? Who is really seeking whom in the cosmic grand scope of things? Who is really seeking whom? And what we see in Scripture is that more than we ever seek God, God seeks us. One of my favorite examples of this in Scripture is a wealthy tax collector named Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in the church, you probably sang great songs and funny songs about Zacchaeus. At first glance, that's also in Luke's Gospel, just a couple chapters after this, this text. Uh, at first glance, it looks like Zacchaeus is the seeker. He looks like the one with the, the primary initiative. Right? He climbs a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. He has to see this man. He has to figure out who this Jesus is. But by the end of that account, it becomes clear Jesus has been seeking Zacchaeus. Initially, Jesus is just on his way to Jerusalem and he's passing through the city of Jericho where Zacchaeus lives. But passing through, he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he looks at him and he makes eye contact with him. He says, hurry down. I must stay at your house. I must. Why must he? Because he is seeking Zacchaeus. Our God is the God who seeks. Jesus is like this shepherd in this parable who seeks the one lost sheep. He's like the woman who seeks the one lost coin. He loves people so much that he goes after them in this way in order to recover what has been lost. And this is where Jesus' teaching is in direct opposition to a common cultural understanding that we have in our day. And that is to say that real love has an agenda. Real love has an agenda. And that agenda is to recover what has been lost. There's a myth that's in our culture. It's the, it's the myth of agendaless love. In other words, to love someone means that you don't have an agenda for them. And there's a very true and very important caution in that. Right? If you treat people like projects, or if you always exert your will and your preferences and your opinions on people in order to quote-unquote fix them, that will hardly pass as love. You'd be hard-pressed to call that love. But the cultural pendulum swing kind of reaction to that is this myth that anything that has an agenda at all, anything that would presume to change me in any way, really isn't love. 
But here's the thing. The only way that you can love someone without any kind of agenda is if they are completely fine the way that they are. But our story, the story for every person who has ever set foot in this earth, is that we are not fine. Our story is that something has gone horribly wrong, that we are lost, that we need to be found, that we need to be recovered. Each one of us is like the sheep described here in this parable and actually described in a similar metaphor centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Sheep who have gone astray, each one turning to his own way. So real love is going to be a seeking, finding, recovering kind of love. And there's something that our culture, I think, just doesn't get as they buy into this myth of a genderless love. Far better than a genderless love, there's this seeking, pursuing love of God. Each of us is prone to miss this God who seeks in one of two ways, either by overestimating or by underestimating ourselves. So some of us overestimate ourselves. And by that I mean we, we don't think that we need rescue. We don't think that we're lost. We think that we're doing just fine. And this is actually what we see most often among the religious leaders in Jesus' day. You probably picked up on this as we read it. Jesus says something really interesting in verse 7. He says that there's more joy about the one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who are these magical people who need no repentance? I've never met them, and I certainly am not one myself. Who are these people? That's the thing. There are no such people, at least not in the objective sense. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, there's no one who's righteous. There's not even one that all have sinned and fall short of the standard of the glory of God. But subjectively, subjectively, we can think ourselves righteous. We can be self-righteous. We can think ourselves strong and skilled and superior to others, having no need for the mercy of God or maybe just a little bit of of the mercy of God. I'm doing pretty good. I just need a little bit of God's mercy to kind of get me the rest of the way. If you overestimate yourself, you will look with disdain on the God who seeks. If you overestimate yourself, you will look with disdain toward the God who seeks. It will be offensive to you. It would be like showing up at random to a really nice home here, let's say, in the borough of Camp Hill. And showing up to one of these nice homes in the borough of Camp Hill with a box of food meant for the homeless and knocking on the door and saying, it looks like you could really use this. How is the wealthy person on the other side of that door likely to respond in that moment? Probably with indignance. Probably something like, how dare you insinuate that I can't provide for myself? How dare you insinuate that I need charity, that I need a hand out, or that I need a hand up? And that's one kind of conversation when it comes to material needs like food. If you overestimate yourself spiritually, you will have that same kind of disdainful reaction toward a God who seeks after you. Because his seeking doesn't just insinuate, it definitively declares, it shouts, you are lost in need of rescue. You are lost and need to be found. The other way to miss this is to underestimate ourselves. To think ourselves so lost that we are a hopeless cause. And if this is you, you won't look at God with disdain. 
you'll look at God with disbelief. Why would Jesus ever waste his time on me? Surely there have got to be other people out there who are more respectable, who are more significant or important, who are more worthy of his time and his effort to rescue. But here's the truth. There are no such people. There are no such people. There are no such respectable, more important people, more worthy of Jesus' time and effort. Because left to ourselves, as we've already heard from the Apostle Paul, no one is righteous, not even one. And because no one is, that means that the only possible person Jesus could be talking about when he talks about this one lost sheep is you. The only person that he could be talking about coming after with this kind of pursuing, rescuing love is you. You, the beautiful yet broken image bearer of God. You, his beloved creation. Jesus deems you worthy of this kind of pursuit. Did you pick up on the wildly disproportionate attention that the shepherd gives to the one sheep or that to the woman the woman gives to the one lost coin? If when you hear that, and that sounds a little bit over the top, that they would take so much time and energy away from the, the group to seek after the one, that's the point. That's the point. It's what Ravi said in that quote that I read a few minutes ago. You are of unique value to God. So much so that regardless of what your life has looked like or does look like, he comes after you. Our God is the God who seeks So don't overestimate yourself and think that you have no need to be found. Don't underestimate yourself and think that you're beyond finding. Second, let's consider the joy-affecting clarity from these two parables. Joy-affecting clarity. I don't need to tell you this because you already know it, but life is complicated. Life is complicated. Faith is complicated. The church is complicated and complex. God is complex. We wrestle in our lives with the problem of pain and suffering. We try to reconcile our wounds, our hardships, our suffering with a God who is perfect and powerful and good and loving. How does that all work together? I know that because just like you, I I wrestle with and try to reconcile those things. I come face-to-face with my doubts. But I find, in the words of Jesus here, I find clarity. And I find clarity in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. These parables communicate this simple and yet incredibly profound truth of what Jesus came into the world to do. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And yes, God's revealed a lot more truth than than just that line. And I'm not advocating in any way that we ever be simplistic or reductionistic in our understanding of all that God's revealed. But when you find yourselves overwhelmed, because you will find yourself overwhelmed by the complexity, by the the ambiguity of, of what this life entails, let these simple parables from Jesus restore and recalibrate your heart and mind. And I hope you would do that even just with these few minutes that we have together this morning. Let the simplicity, simplicity, the clarity of this break through the fog and the complexity of your life. Who is God? He is the one who seeks after that which has been lost. There's a lot of joy to be found in this clarity. 
because joy is exactly what it elicits in heaven. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. That's what Jesus is teaching in both of these parables. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. God rejoices when that which was lost is found. It is among the most joy-affecting events or instances that happen in all of God's created order. And it is an ever-increasing joy as more and more people who once were lost are found by God. Think about how much more joy there is in heaven today than when these words were written. Or even before that, when they were spoken. How much more joy there is in heaven today than there was yesterday as people have come to know God as he has saved more and more people. But I'll be the first to confess, and maybe this will resonate with you, I've seen so little conversion to Christianity in these past years that I forget God does this. I forget God does this. I've seen so little through my own life with men and women that I'm in relationship with and and, and seeking to love and care for them well in my life. I've seen so little of it here in the life of our church. It's just not been the, the thing that we've seen a lot of in the last five years of being a church together. At Liberty, we are really intentional and we're careful never to guilt people into belief, never to emotionally manipulate people into belief. And if you've been here for a couple weeks, then you, like, you already know that. You're, like, you're not worried about that. We're not going to be the folks who, who whip you up into an emotional frenzy and then try to leverage that into some kind of quick decision for Jesus. If anything, we're like the exact opposite of of that spectrum. Like if you say, I had a real deep conviction from the Holy Spirit, we're like, are you sure you just didn't eat spicy food last night? We're more, to err, we're more likely to err on that side than we are on, on the emotional manipulation side. But when we don't see this happen often or in a, on a regular basis, when we don't see people making decisions to become Christians, we can forget this is the work that Jesus does. So let me ask you, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten Has it been so long since you've perceived God's powerful saving work that you find less joy and a lot more cynicism in your heart? Let me offer you, just for a few moments, the gift that I was offered this week, which is a chance to sit and read and reflect on the stories of real people who once were lost but who have been found by Jesus. I grew up being forced to go to church. For most of my life, I pretty much rejected anything dealing with God or religion. Over time, I started getting myself into situations I didn't really know how to get out of on my own, so I just went deeper into them. Eventually, God started surrounding me with Christians. I struggled for a while with how I could possibly be someone Jesus wanted to save. Then I realized how much he loved me, even though I didn't deserve it. Or another one. Although I grew up in a biblical church and a loving home, I managed to become a Pharisee about theology and Bible interpretation and anything else I could find to argue about. While avoiding what an old friend used to call the, call the technicolor sins, I've struggled with pride and judgmentalism throughout my life. So I need constant reminding of the core message of the gospel, that Christ has done it all. I don't need to prove myself to God, only rest in him. Or another. I came from a very hostile and dysfunctional family. My father committed suicide. My mother was mentally not well and punished me in cruel ways. And my stepfather kept pornography in the home, which I looked at often. 
Because of the lack of love in our home and being hungry for it, I looked for love elsewhere and became very promiscuous. I left home at 17 after an abortion. I lived in many places and did many things that I later became ashamed of. A pastor's family took me into their home and showed me love and led me to Christ. Another one. I grew up in a Christian family going to church every Sunday. I did all the things children do when they go to church, but I never actually listened to the message of God. I prayed like God was Santa Claus and carried myself as if I was trying to earn my way onto Santa's nice list. I missed the message of the gospel as a child and then stopped going to church before I could understand it. In the summer of 2008, I was involved in a serious motorcycle accident, spent a night in the trauma center. During the following months of recovery, I had a lot of time to think and reflect on the poor choices I've made. That accident could have been my time run out. Instead, it became the reason I turned to God. Another one. I was in a new town looking for friends, and everybody I met was a Christian. Everybody. I tried avoiding Christians, but they kept popping up in my life. One night laying in bed, I prayed to God for faith to believe, then for my sins to be forgiven. My husband was a little disappointed that the good time girl he had married became a new creation in Christ Jesus. But that changed eight years later when he became a Christian too. Or another. I was very good at resisting Christ. In high school, I remember questioning and rejecting the existence of God. Of course, that left a huge hole, so over the next couple decades, I kept looking for something to fill that void. Military, college, traveling, marriage, and family. I was reading about Indian sorcery and Eastern spirituality, visiting an intentional community, majoring in philosophy, and having other adventures and experiences. In my search, I found nothing. I decided that value and purpose to our existence must be assigned by everyone individually, or at best, by our culture. Of course, that proved just as empty. What changed, eventually leading to my salvation, were two things. One was that my wife, who had become a Christian some years before, eventually stopped nagging me to get saved. Instead, she and the kids prayed. Second was visiting a church that focused on how to live as a follower of Christ. The Christian faith began to make sense as life questions were answered, and I saw, a life pur- I saw purpose in life was from a power bigger than me. And one more. I was saved at a young age and used to think that I had a boring testimony. No radical conversion story for me. It wasn't until after college that I came to realize I had truly been saved, what I had truly been saved from, and I saw God's grace in life-changing ways. We were all once, as the Apostle Paul says, children of wrath, even if we were saved at a young age. And that's what makes the gospel so radical, that Jesus called the sinner like me to himself. Every conversion story is radical and awesome because of what Jesus Christ has done and continues to do. Okay, if any of those sounded familiar as I read them, it's because this is us. This is us. Those were parts of the stories of men and women of this church as they've come into covenant. Those are stories of men and women sitting in the room with you this morning, maybe next to you, or in front of you, or behind you. And let me tell you how hard it was as I went through these this week to just pick a few. Because there are more than a hundred of these. And just if, because that, 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 that these stories weren't all yesterday, or weren't last year, or weren't 5, 10, 15, 20, or 50 years ago, that doesn't mean that this isn't today the very same work that Jesus is doing. 
That doesn't mean that today Jesus isn't continuing that work that he has done in the lives of the men and women in this room and that he will continue to do in the lives of others until he comes again. This is what Jesus does every single hour until he comes back to reconcile the world to himself. He says in John chapter 10, I have other sheep and I must bring them also. So when your eyes aren't clear enough to see in the present, look backward and remember that Jesus saves sinners. And let that clarify and let that recalibrate your view of God. If it's lost in the complexity, if it's lost in the fog, if it's been lost in these recent weeks, months, or years, let that recalibrate your view of God. Let it stir up in your soul the very same joy that it stirs up in heaven. As we enter into Lent this week, as we pursue repentance, as we come face to face with our need for repentance, with our own sin, may you be met by the God who seeks. Are you lost? Then may you be found by Jesus. May you neither overestimate yourself or underestimate yourself. May you see yourself both as one in need of rescue and one worthy of rescue. Are you among those who have been found by him? Then remember and rejoice and long for even more opportunities to feel and experience this same kind of joy, the unique kind of joy it is, when Jesus saves sinners. Right? Allow these words of Jesus, even today, as you go from here, to break through the, the, the complexity, the cynicism, and be refreshed in this simple and powerful reality. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We sang of it earlier, Jesus. All of our hope is in you. All of our hope is in perceiving that you are the God who seeks after we who were, who were lost, who are lost. And I pray that we would, where we've forgotten that this is the work that you come into the world to do, where, where we have grown skeptical where we doubt, I pray that you would stir up in us a renewed kind of joy, that we would see in our own past, in the lives of those sitting in the room with us this morning, we would see that you are a God who does exactly this. You are the God who has gone after the sheep who was astray. You are the God who goes after the coin that was lost and recovers them. And would seeing that in our own lives, would that give us a deeper passion and longing for you to do even more of that work in the days to come? And I pray that we would, in the years that come, see more and more of this happen through our own relationships with the men and women that we love. And that we'd see more of that in our own ministry here in this region as a church. That you would be gracious and kind enough to do your saving work, saving sinners in this region, and you would use us as, the, as, part, of that, as part of that work you're doing. We want to be used by you in that. But to be used by you in that, first clear our, our eyes so that we see that this is who you are and this is what you do. And may we see it even more clearly as we come to the table where we see the sacrifice you have made, the work that you have done so that you might recover what was once lost. I pray this in your name. Amen.